0: Well, good morning everyone both uh, in the room as well as online. I have been joined by my colleague, my friend, my teammate uh, Jeremy. If you don't subscribe to our Friday e-news. We dropped a little uh, message in there on Friday to let you know that uh, this young man who's been uh, with us for almost 14 years on our church staff here, you started when you were 23 years old. You were just a puppy uh, as our junior high pastor. And Jeremy has emerged over the years and has been uh, faithfully serving here as one of our senior associates for some time and, uh, and had a profound impact on our church. And uh, you and Heather reached a point where you decided that uh, no mas, we're out of here. You're gonna bail on us at the end of June. And so we congratulate you on this new posting. I got a mistake, Uh, I made a mistake in the Friday e-newsletter. I said you were the assistant superintendent of the Western Canadian,
1: that's our district. I got it wrong. So tell everybody where you're going, what you're doing. Uh, so I resigned this week and accepted a new position as the assistant district superintendent in the Canadian Midwest district of the Alliance Canada. Same thing. Yeah yeah so it's it's very long uh, but I have the opportunity to get to step into a different type of uh, role where I'll be working with about 71 churches over four provinces and and get to support them as they kind of embark on what we try to do here in their local congregations so how can we pray for you and your family Uh, what would be the best yeah i mean you know like this is uh hard to say goodbye to to all of you lots of practical details uh like we're going away away like like to another province away and so all that stuff you know selling houses moving all those sorts of details so would love to to have your uh, continued prayers for us as we make this move and we will continue to faithfully pray for you here as well.
0: So timeline, uh, Jeremy and Heather will be with us uh, yet for the rest of this month and the rest of next month. So we're gonna have some uh, proper goodbyes at the end of June, but just because you're here and you got the mic, anything
1: you wanna say today? (laughs) Well, if none of you come back to church because it's almost summertime, Bye! <laughs> uh, no, it's been uh, amazing to be with you. We love you. We have been, um, just, we feel such a part of this. We've had the best friends we've ever made here. Uh, there's a lot that's hard about this, um, but it's good. And so, yeah, please continue to pray for us. We'll see you around, lots, lots of time still to connect and, and meet with a number of you, but um, it's been a great joy. And thank you, and that's all I'm saying about that. <laughs> all right, thanks, Jeremy. <clears throat>
0: So, I uh, officiated a funeral this week uh, for a family that, until a couple of weeks ago, uh, I had never met uh, anybody in this family. Now, the reason I got connected to this was a a mutual friend, a pastor friend from the city, uh, this family reached out to him and he couldn't support this family and partially because the person who, dis, who died is the spouse of a first responder and that's a world I, I spend a lot of time in. Uh, the call came to me to say, hey, you know, Greg, would you come and, and help this family uh, as they're in a bit of a need right now for some support. And so that's how a couple of weeks ago, I found myself at the university hospital holding the hand of a woman who was dying. She couldn't, um, she couldn't say much. Uh, she could definitely acknowledge my presence. She was able to look you know, and have a little bit of a, a reaction to me. I was able to speak with her. I was able to reassure her and bless her and talk with her and pray for her and read scripture to her. And I, I said to her, it's okay. It's okay to go. And I said, you can trust Uh, that God is in this with you and that he's there for you. And so we had our time together, and then about 30 hours later she passed away uh, with her husband and her son at her side. Now nobody asked the question, at least out loud, that I heard, but I know among her friends and family as I kind of journeyed with them for the last few days that there was real frustration for some of them about what had happened to this person that they loved. She was not young, but she was definitely not old. And that she died so quickly after being diagnosed with an illness was a big shock to the family. And so I remember some of them just hinting, at least, at that age-old question, maybe the big unanswerable question, which is, why does God allow this kind of suffering? If God is a loving God who loves his kids, if he's a good God, how come so much bad stuff happens, especially to good people? These are universal questions. You've all asked it, I'm sure, at some point, and not being able to answer it in a way that satisfies can mess with us. It's a question that may have wobbled your faith at some point. How to reconcile good God, bad things. It causes, this matter causes a number of people to walk away from faith. It's a highly emotional question. Now, imagine for a minute that John was here. I'm talking about the gospel writer John, as in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. Just imagine for a minute that maybe John was here and in the room and listening to this introduction to this message. I can kind of imagine him waving his hands and saying, hey, I got to... Uh, I got something for you here. I don't necessarily encourage that sort of behavior. But, you know, if somebody does, I'll I'll listen. And, And imagine John standing up and saying, hey, wait, 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 wait. I can help you with your dilemma. Trust in what I saw, he might say. What I saw has left me with zero doubt that I was in the presence of the divine. I was with God in a body. I'm talking about Jesus here. And while I'm not sure I can answer all of your questions, I can testify about what I saw him do in the face of evil and suffering and some of the worst kind of stuff. And I believe that not only what he did and what he said proves that he's the kind of God he claims to be, one that's madly in love with his kids and ultimately working all things for our good. I, trust me, you can, you can count on him. You can count on what I saw and what I experienced. We're in a series where we're studying the seven I am statements of Jesus in John's gospel and we're looking, about, uh, looking at all of these different ways that Jesus describes himself with metaphor and, and illustration and parable. Jesus calls himself a gate, uh, a doorway, a path. He calls himself a good shepherd, the bread of life. Light in the darkness, all of these things. And John's purpose in writing his gospel is to help you come to the same conclusion that he has. And to help you get there, what he does is just report on everything he saw and everything he experienced. He writes all of this stuff down. He can't write down everything. That would be massive. But he he gives us this highlight reel of the best of Jesus and writes all of this down. So what I want to do this morning is show you the fifth I am statement from John's gospel. It's from chapter 11, and here it is just right off the top. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. So this is the I am statement we're going to grapple with this morning. But what I want to do is build to it. I think it's important that we always see these things in context. Of course, you know that. And so I'm going to do a quick rip through the whole chapter, John chapter 11. It's a loaded chapter. I won't touch on absolutely everything, but we're going to cover most of it. So there's going to be lots of text coming at you. Uh, Here we go. Now, the first little textual, contextual detail I want to get on the table here is that Jesus has a propensity for road trips. He's a rabbi on the move. He's constantly going from Jerusalem up north to Galilee to that region. Uh, The region around Jerusalem is where a lot of events take place. Jerusalem is down here, Galilee's up here. Think of Galilee and Jesus' home area as being like Grand Prairie to Edmonton. So Jesus is kind of from Grand Prairie-ish, not really. But you know, that's kind of what I'm saying. He kind of moves between north and central, kind of back and forth. Sometimes it looks like he's moving about to find more fertile ground as in, you know, places where people are more receptive to his message. And it's in some of these smaller, outlying, remote areas where Jesus uh, gives us some of his most famous teaching where a lot of his miracles take place. All of this happens generally outside, or a lot of this happens outside of Jerusalem. So what I want to show you is one of these occasions where he's in a, a smaller community and something Jesus does there causes a whole bunch of people to embrace him and begin to follow him and begin to refer to him as their Lord. Here's what happened. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. So, what you have here is some close friends of Jesus. The sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. So they send somebody with a message to Jesus, hey, Jesus, your friend. Uh, whoever goes, whoever takes the message, finds where Jesus is and says, Your friend, the one you love. Clearly, they have this intimate connection. He's he's sick, and his sisters are asking for you. And when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. Now, here's the part that's ironic. It's it's likely that when Jesus says these words, it's likely that his friend is already dead, and yet he says here, this sickness is not going to end in his death. And he says, no, it is for God's glory. Now, uh, what's on the screen right now, I would not blame you for a second if that maybe doesn't sit real well with you. You might even recoil a little bit because what you have here is a reference to sickness for God's glory. That, that sounds kind of sadistic. That, that doesn't sound real welcoming. <laughs> And part of what we have in in Jesus' explanation is that somehow there's a divine purpose to what's happening to his friend. Jesus said, The sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, be careful with this. There's nothing in the text to indicate that God is. You know, inflicting some illness on Lazarus. It doesn't say that God is, you know, the author of this disease and he's sort of doing this to him. It's, it's more likely that this disease or sickness, whatever has happened to him, has come his way because of the world we live in, in the, in the natural way. And we say this around here often when the question of, you know, why suffering and good people and all of that, hey, this is a broken world. Our world is filled with disease and sickness and disasters and calamities. It's filled with stuff that I see and I can't sufficiently explain. And and that would appear to be the case here. But you have Jesus suggesting that despite what's happened to his friend, somehow there's a purpose here, that that Jesus has a purpose in it. Somehow his friend's sickness is going to glorify God. And I get this is very counterintuitive. This is a new category for some of you. Sickness which glorifies. This is not really what we want to hear. And I think maybe because John knows that this may not land very well, he, he inserts, I think, a little bit of an editorial comment right at this point. This is where John says next, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And maybe, maybe John makes this statement because it it kind of looks like Jesus doesn't love his friend. Maybe they wouldn't be in the predicament they're in if Jesus loved them a little bit more. And so it's like John says, hang on, hang on, hang on. Listen, he really does love them. Jesus really does love them. Just trust me on that. I hope you're feeling this. Um, Sometimes it doesn't feel like we're loved. Sometimes it looks like God is absent or not paying attention. The idea that, that God isn't watching or maybe isn't ultimately loving um, may just be the point here, and I think Jesus knows how we think, and so he allows this situation to play out in, in a way that he, he wants to do something with this, not just for his friends, but it looks like the way this goes down, he's allowing this to happen the way it does to teach us something all the way into the future so here's another little detail you might not like so when he heard that Lazarus was sick he stayed where he was two more days that's unusual specificity Uh, Jesus is up to something he's clearly orchestrating something here he's got a purpose in mind And so when Jesus hears the message, he dispatches the messenger back to wherever he or she came from, and then he spends two more days hanging out, doing what he's doing where he's doing it, before suddenly saying, after two more days, all right, now let's go back to Judea. Let's go back to Bethany. So he just takes his time there. He just just hangs for a while. No hurry, no rush. Now, if you would go back through the chronology in the gospel here, the last time Jesus and his people are in this area where they're now heading, things did not go well. Things had gotten really heated up. In fact, some of the local leaders, the religious leaders, uh, found offense in Jesus and they threatened to stone him. And so, as Jesus says, okay, let's go, some of the other disciples say, hmm, not sure about this. Remember, uh, the last time, a short while ago, while the Jews were there, they tried to stone you and yet, you wanna go back, you sure, Jesus? Now, they're worried about Jesus, yes, but they're probably also thinking about themselves because if they're with him, whatever happens to Jesus is likely going to you know, impact them. And if people start throwing rocks to stone Jesus, they might get caught by shrapnel. They might be collateral damage. And so I think they're also looking out for their own skins here where they say, um, Jesus, maybe you want to rethink your travel plans there. Eh, not so sure about this which results in Jesus changing the subject. And in doing so, he gets to the core issue. And Jesus does this all the time when his disciples are confused or indignant. And he does stuff like this when, you know, you're not sure where the story is going. He does these beautiful, brilliant things. This is Jesus in these moments where he just twists things in a hurry. This is Jesus generally wanting to make more like down here, more like up here, he's trying to bring a heavenly perspective on an on a earthly crisis. And so this is one of those times where Jesus says something that almost sounds bizarre at first. So all of this dialogue is going back and forth about whether or not they should go. And he turns to the disciples who are saying, maybe not. And he says, are there not 12 hours of daylight? What the what? <laughs> like what, what are you talking about, Jesus? That's, where, what are you What are you saying? Jesus says, anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. And I can imagine the disciples going, what are you talking about? (laughs) What do you mean? What does that have to do with what we were just discussing? We're confused. Now, as this narrative unfolds, I think the point that Jesus is making here becomes more clear. The 12 hours he's speaking of are 12 hours of opportunity. What he's saying to the guys is, listen, what you need to do is follow me because I'm the light of the world. You need to follow the light of the world while the light of the world is in the world. Gentlemen, this is a unique opportunity. You are in the physical presence of the light of the world. And you ought to, while you can, follow as closely as you can and not miss anything I do and say, Because the light of the world is going to leave the world soon. And when I do, the world's going to be darker than it was before. So stay here if you want to, guys. You can can stay and you can hang out and you can look after yourself. But if you do, you are going to miss something that really is, is kind of like the opportunity of a lifetime. You're going to miss out on the light of the world bringing light to a dark place, a dark life situation, and it's gonna change the way people think about life and death forever. Similarly, I think Jesus says to us, friends, if you don't follow the light of the world, you're gonna stumble around in the darkness yourself. You might struggle with meaning and purpose. You might struggle to make sense of a world that doesn't make sense often. Until you follow the author of life, there's a chance you will stumble around and not make a lot of sense of your life. And so this is why Jesus is constantly telling us and anybody who would listen to follow him, he's saying, I'm the light of the world who came into the world to light your world and show you the way. So after he had said this to him, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. And I love this part because this is where the disciples sort of offer medical advice. They say to Jesus, hey, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. You know, just let him rest. What do you mean going to go wake him up? You know, if you're sick, just rest, chill. John, who's writing this, you know, way after the fact, he knows exactly what happens. And so he knows that Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. And so Jesus said it emphatically, plainly, He's dead, Lazarus is dead, which is a stunning statement if you think about it, because remember, he had said earlier that this sickness is not gonna end in his death, and now he says, he's dead, guys, he's dead. And for your sake, he says. He's telling the disciples, and he's telling us, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but now let us go to him. Now, this is one of those times, again, where I think we have to be honest about the scriptures. Sometimes they are frustrating. Sometimes they're troubling. Okay, yes, God may be up to something, but what happened to Mary and Martha and their brother was brutal for them. Like, that's awful. For you and me, it's incredible. This story is incredible news at the end, but for them, at least initially, like I can't even imagine their pain. Well, check that. I, I kind of can imagine I saw it up close and personal with this family the last few days. I felt it myself. I lost a sister, tragically, when she was only 45. I've sat with many of you in the aftermath of you losing a loved one, and some of them in the worst possible way, children, teenagers, young adults, some of them going in in really tragic ways. So what happens to Lazarus and his sisters, that's great news, it's wonderful for us, but for them, at least initially, it's awful. Jesus says, I'm glad I was not there to keep my friend from going through the agony of dying. I'm glad I was not there to shield his sisters from their pain and their anguish. As difficult as this is to wrap our minds around, in the middle of this awfulness, Jesus is doing something great. He's orchestrating something that will eventually fall like a theological bomb, something so transformative that it will give all of us today a reason for hope. It's a a way to reconcile a, a loving God in a broken world, a loving God in a world that just doesn't always cooperate. Jesus says, for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. And then he says, okay, let's roll. Now, what happens next is humorous. I, I think the Bible's funnier than most people give it credit for. I, I, it's not like usually laugh out loud funny, but there's, there's humor in the scriptures. If you if you look carefully at the, at the text, you will see little things in the text that just they're funny come on you got to admit this a little bit and and what happens next is is one of those times so the disciples they don't really want to go they're not sure what's going on here they can't understand why uh, their their friend is was dead and, and how that can be a good thing and what Jesus is like speaking of here and so finally it's Thomas who says he just blurts out to the rest of the disciples well let us also go we might as well go die with him I think that's funny. Like, because what he's basically saying is Jesus is going to die. Lazarus is already dead. Jesus is going to die. Well, if Jesus is going to, we're going to die too. Well, let's just all go out together. Let's just, let's all go. We're all going to go down together. Let's, might as well make it a party. And so while this is going on, There's a wake happening in Bethany. Uh, The body of Lazarus is lying on a table. This is how it happens in this time period. It still happens this way in some parts of the world. So there's like a two or three day mourning period. The body's lying out there. But eventually you got to prepare this body for burial. And by the way, Jesus has missed everything. Like he's, he's missed his friend's illness, the embalming, the funeral, everything. The funeral's over. All the sandwiches are packed away and distributed to the relatives by the time Jesus shows up. According to John, Lazarus is dead and in the ground four days by the time Jesus arrives. When uh, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha, when she ran out to find Jesus, she said to him, exactly what we say sometimes, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. I love this honesty. Um, It's stuff like this, these kind of um, uh, inclusions in the New Testament and the scriptures, these are the kind of, um, this is evidence to me that this is real and not a manipulative text, because these moments of real honesty are placed in there, I think, to help us identify with the text a little bit. So there's real human reaction and emotion here. Martha is mad I mean, she takes a swipe at Jesus. If you'd been on time, maybe the outcome would have been different. In other words, this is partly your fault. You know, you could have, but you didn't. And I hope this is an encouragement to you to see that it's that it's okay maybe if you feel this way sometimes or think this way. There's nothing wrong with your faith if you question God's actions or inactions. Bad things happen to good people all the time, even good friends of Jesus. Martha's emotional. She is grieving, she's mad. But despite these strong emotions, she digs deep and she pulls up whatever whatever's left of her faith, and she says, okay, even though you're so late, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And so Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha's response was, yeah, I I know he'll rise again at the resurrection at the last day. Now, there's humor here too. (laughs) Martha thinks that Jesus is doing theology. Like he's speaking in the macro, uh, uh, like Jesus is thinking in the big picture sense that ultimately everything is going to be made right. Jesus is, is, she thinks Jesus is pointing to that kind of ultimate uh, end that, that that's what's coming and that's what's going to make her feel better. And so that's why what happens next is so breathtaking, uh, it's, it's easy not to feel the feels we should feel because we're not there to see it up close. Mary and Martha are exasperated, justifiably so, and so in her frustration as she takes a little swipe at him, Jesus looks Martha right in the eye and says, Martha, look at me. Look, listen, I am not talking about the other side of eternity, I'm not asking you to trust in what you've always believed, what you've been taught about death and the afterlife. He looks at her and he says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. You are looking at resurrection and life personified. I am the embodiment of everything you've hoped for. I am the resurrection and the life, the light which has come into a dark world. I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me, anyone who places their trust in me, who lives by believing in me, did you catch that? Who lives their life, who lives fully, who really lives by believing in me, has life. That's the one who really lives, and that's the one who will never really die. And this is so hard to take in, hard to grasp, hard to feel, hard to completely understand, but... But here it is. Or as one commentator put it, just as Jesus says, Lazarus won't die, but he dies, Jesus says, you'll die, but you won't. And so the teaching of Jesus is, death is a door. Death is a transition. And in her confused and frustrated state, with this confused look on her face, Jesus looks at Martha again and says, do you believe this, Martha? Do you believe this? This is hard to believe. It's hard for you and me. It's hard for Martha, who one more time musters up as much faith as she can and responds, and she says, yes, Lord, yes, I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, who came to this world. Jesus, I believe, okay, I believe in some mystical, powerful way that you've got this, that you're in this. So Martha goes home and tells Mary what happened, and Mary runs out, has a similar conversation with Jesus, and it's right after that that Jesus finally arrives, and then we have this incredibly detailed description from John here when Jesus saw her weeping, saw everybody there, the Jews who'd come along with her also weeping. So there's a crowd there. Jesus kind of sizes the whole thing, in. he's moved in spirit and troubled, and he says to the family, where have you laid him? And they say, come and see, Lord. Now, some of you know what what happens next. You know that what happens next is, is one of the most tender moments we have in the entire Um, New Testament narrative, especially around the life of Christ. This is the moment where we see his humanity up close. Now, Jesus knows what he's about to do. He knows what's going to happen, but before anything does happen, Jesus enters into the moment. He enters into the emotion of the moment, into the pain, into the fears. Jesus enters all the human emotion that's on display in the lives of the people around him, and he enters in with empathy. And I think demonstrates how much he actually cares about his friends how much he cares about you this is john 11:35 jesus wept I wanna remind you that the, the verse headings and the notations and, and the, all the stuff you see in the, in the Bible that's designed to help you navigate the text and find certain spots and chapter headings, uh, all the, the paragraph stuff, it, these are not in the original text. These are added by translators and scholars for the ease of, of reading and reference checking and you know kind of keeping track of where you are. But way, way back, way, way back, the, the scholars and translators that, that laid our Bible out the way we have it had the wisdom to give those two words translated into English their own verse number, just those two words. Jesus wept. This is one of the big reasons why the Apostle Peter can say in one of his letters that it is possible for us to cast our cares on the one who knows our suffering, who knows our struggles, who identifies with us. And the Jews who were present at the home said, see how he loved him. But one of them said, some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? They're still still taking some little jabs here at Jesus. They're still saying, come on, man, you know. They're still frustrated by Jesus' timing or lack thereof. So, again, one more time, there it is questioning God, questioning God's timing. Listen, if that's you, it's okay. It's okay. And so now we have the brilliance of Jesus in a single moment, one where he summarizes his entire book of teaching in a single act. All the pain, all the disappointment, all the unanswered prayers, they build to this moment designed to give future generations hope. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. And he said, take away the stone. Take it away. But Lord, Martha said, uh... Uh, you sure you want to do that? Because like, it's not pretty probably in there right now. I don't think there's a bad, he's been dead for four days. This is not going to be good. And then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And so the family says, okay. Remove the stone. And the stone is pulled back. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. How cool is that? Uh, Again, the whole, how the Trinity works and how the Father and the Son and the Spirit, like how they, you know, they're one yet unique, all of that stuff is kind of complicated. But in in the Trinity, Jesus is praying to the Father saying, we know, we know exactly what's going to happen here, but I'm praying this for the benefit of the people watching. He knows everybody's watching him. And he says, I'm going to give them something that they can hold on to into the future that they may believe that it was you who sent me. I'll never be able to explain to anybody's real satisfaction, especially my own, why bad things happen to good people. All I can do in those moments when I'm trying to do that is just point to who Jesus is. Because it's in Jesus that many of our frustrations and questions are reconciled because he's the resurrection and the life. When he had said this, when he had finished his prayer, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And John, who was there, tells us that the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped in strips of linen and a cloth around his face, and Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. And I would imagine for a moment there was horror and shock and what is happening, and then very quickly elation and they probably mobbed the guy and tackled him and who knows what happened and then john adds one last detail that i don't think he needed to he writes therefore many of the jews who had come to visit mary and had seen what jesus did believed in him no kidding right (laughs) like it seems like that's the least surprising thing that would have happened if i saw that i'd be all into those who saw believed, which is the reason for John's gospel. His intent is to report on what made him believe, and now he says to you, hey, this is my testimony. What do you think? This is what I saw happened. This is what I saw with my own eyes. And by learning, if you were to learn what what Jesus did and what he taught This is how you can know him and how you can love him and how you can follow him because he's the gate. He's the way. He's the good shepherd. He's the resurrection. And in him, there is life. And near the end of his gospel, John doubles down on all of this. This is one of the other places where he's describing one more time why he went to all the effort to write these things down and why he wished to chronicle the life of Jesus in in one place. He says, I've got one simple but massive reason, but these are written. I wrote all of this down, he says. I wrote this stuff down. I wrote this story out for you that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Believe in him and have life in his name. Jesse mentioned uh, at the beginning of the service that we've been orchestrating some different responses uh, throughout the, the series here. We've been trying to find a way to, to kind of move and in, engage a little bit uh, at the end of these messages. And so uh, last weekend, if you were here, I kind of threw the challenge out. You know, some of you maybe want to do the the thing where you just walk to the front and, and pray at the altar and respond to the message of of Jesus being your good shepherd, and some people did. It was pretty cool to watch that happen. Uh, two weeks ago we had, because of the SCA musical, we had this big gate up here, and, and I kind of challenged us to maybe some of you come up and stand in the gate and, and just have that experience of, of, of praying and you know, sort of marking the moment in a doorway or use one of the other doorways, or go to your home and, and pray in a, in a gate or in a doorway. On the weekend, we talked about the bread of life. We did the natural thing, which is to partake in communion. We did an extra communion service on a weekend. We weren't planning for it. So for this one, we thought, how should we respond to this, the resurrection and the life message? And we thought, let's respond with baptism. And so what we did is we put the tank out. We did not advertise this as a baptism weekend. We didn't do prep classes. We didn't film any testimonies. But the tank is, is here and it's ready. And if you would like to join the 40 or so that were baptized on Easter, a young woman was baptized last night, you can actually be baptized in about 10 minutes from now, 10 to 15 minutes. I mean that. If you'd like to be baptized uh, over the next few minutes, if you want to move out and go down to the fireside room that's right over there on the other side of this wall, so just out here, back there, some of our leaders are there. And they can coach you up and get you everything you need to get you ready to be baptized. And we'll do that at the very end of the service today. That would be a great way to do what others have done so much around here lately, which is to identify with Jesus you know, by, by moving from, from death to life in his name through the act of baptism. So that's for maybe a few of you. For a lot more of you who, like me, were baptized at some point in the way, way back... What we're also going to do over these next few moments, maybe you've noticed there's a few stations set up around the room. We're going to do something that we've done once before, and that is just a simple way of, of for some of us, remembering our own baptism. Uh, My baptism happened when I was about 12 years old. So that's a way back. And so it's a few decades old, but uh, it's a bit of a blurry memory, but sometimes it's good just to kind of go back to that moment and and what was going on and just remember and relive it a little bit. And the way we've done this once before uh, is by allowing you to come forward. We have some bowls of water there and we're gonna have some pastors and leaders at each of these stations. And if you wish to, We will anoint you with water. That's all it is, is just a little water. And we will just pronounce a short blessing on you. And in that moment, this is just your time to just... Think back to the day that you were baptized. So typically when we anoint, if you will, uh, it's usually just the sign of a cross on the forehead. If that feels a little invasive, a little too much, why don't you just hold out your, you know, maybe the back of your hand or your wrist, and we can also just do it there. So when you come up to one of us, just either point here or point here, and we'll just put a little water on you, we'll bless you, and then you can go back to your seat. So here's what's gonna happen. We're gonna have some music playing. We're gonna worship. We're gonna sing a little bit. You're gonna see a highlight reel of some baptisms. There's gonna be a lot of movement around the room. Some of you may wish to go to the fireside room to inquire about baptism. Some of you, if you are getting baptized, you have family, you can certainly come and gather. So we'll just kind of do this organic thing for the next few minutes and see what happens, okay? So again, uh, whenever you're ready, if this is something you'd like to experience, there's stations at the back, there's stations at the front, stand, sit, do whatever you wish to do, but let's kind of get out of the way and let God do his thing here among us. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this gift of salvation that comes through Christ. Thank you for the promise that if we do life in your name, we really do have life, Life for eternity, sure, but it's also that eternity that begins now by walking faithfully and humbly with you. So God, for those that are processing whether or not this is the day to to take a a bold step of declaring faith in you in a public way through baptism, I pray that you would move in their hearts and give them confidence and boldness and courage for the rest of us, for many of us who just want to relive what we've done in the past. God, um, fill this room with your presence. May we sense your nearness. And meet us in these in these moments. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. So if you're able and willing, why don't you stand if you want and then join us in this way? Move about.